A number of years ago, my father, grandmother, and I went out to visit Kennedy Space Center on Merritt Island on the east coast of Florida. We hadn't been in a long time, and I'd been studying aerospace engineering in high school, so it seemed like a perfect day trip. It was, and to this day I long to return. However, on the drive back from the Kennedy Space Center, my view from the back seat showed me something that stuck in my head. It was a small neighborhood of abandoned houses, overgrown with trees and foliage. The only notable thing in the area was a biker bar that had only two people in the parking lot. I assumed they were astronaut towns, left behind when the aerospace industry stopped booming in Florida and commuting to the Cape became a more viable option instead of having to live nearby. I had this vision of empty streets with sawgrass sprouting through the cracks. On the way to see the history of NASA, ignoring the ruins of the people who made that history all those decades ago. I swore to return, to find this neighborhood, and to tell the story of those who left it behind. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and on this week's Wait 5 Minutes, I took myself up on that challenge and explored the Canaveral National Seashore, the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge, and the city surrounding the Kennedy Space Center. Kennedy Space Center itself was officially granted to the United States government on September 1st, 1961, during President Kennedy's first year in office. It was to be built on the existing Merritt Island, and the reason for its founding was to support the Apollo missions. The Apollo missions would not begin for several years more. Apollo 1 was set to launch in 1967, but a fatal explosion during a test killed the three pilots, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Within two years, however, Apollo 11 landed on the moon on July 21st, 1969. The KSC, as it is referred to on the signs all over the area, was named in honor of President Kennedy after he was assassinated in November of 1963. In fact, it was one of President Lyndon Johnson's first acts as president following the assassination. He named the center after the late president. And thus, the Kennedy Space Center was born. KSC is situated on the northern side of Merritt Island, which, up until the creation of the Kennedy Space Center, was largely uninhabited due to the expansive marshes and the large mosquito populations inside. After visiting yesterday, I can confirm this. There are swarms of mosquitoes, and they really want to eat your ankles. NASA got the land for KSC, and the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge followed. Preliminary research on ghost towns in the area pointed out a couple of notable former townships. Most of them were on Merritt Island, but there was one just south of New Smyrna Beach that was the only one on the list that had a structure still in place. The town was called Eldora, and it was situated inside the Canaveral National Seashore. This seashore is 25 miles of undeveloped nature, making it the longest stretch of undeveloped land along Florida's Atlantic coast. It contains obvious recreational activities such as canoeing or hiking, but includes an archaeological dig at a spot called Turtle Mound. Turtle Mound is a 50-foot-tall prehistoric archaeological dig made by the Timucuan people five or six centuries before colonizers came to our peninsula, and composed almost entirely out of oyster shells. A set of boardwalks lead to the top of the mound where you can see the Indian River Lagoon to the west and the Atlantic Ocean to the east in just one shot. It's perfect up there, and the space feels very old. And I imagine that this is a natural spot for tourists to watch the launches from Kennedy. But beyond that, this is a landmark, unlike any other, and you can almost feel that this was an epicenter for an entire culture out here a millennia ago. 
Things change, however, but it's nice to know someone is looking out for the Timaquan relics. Further along the road of the Canaveral National Seashore, a sign points deeper into the marshes, indicating that this is Eldora. I had arrived at the first ghost town. In the decades after the Civil War, Eldora was used for agriculture and industry like many small towns, serving as a stop for steamboats along the area. Florida's habitat became the obvious home for citrus growers. This trend swept the state, and the isolated town was no exception. However, a series of freezes over several years crippled the citrus industry, and there was no recovery. After the turn of the century, when Florida's addiction to tourism first took hold and railroads cut through the land, Eldora became a destination along the marshes for rich travelers coming from the north. Eldora was the place for fishing, hunting, and boating. But then, before World War II, Eldora fell to ruin. The population fled north, and Eldora only had one resident, a painter named Doc Leeper, who helped found the seashore. When she passed in 2000, Eldora became official government property. The state house built in 1913 still stands to this day along a back road. En route to the state house, I encountered something completely new to me, the first of many firsts this trip. A hairy creature stood at the side of the road, about two feet tall. My car clearly startled it, and it dashed into the woods. Approaching where it had been, I looked through the shrub and saw the famous Florida wild hog. As I passed, he snuffed across the road behind me, and I sat slack-jawed, admiring the fact that I just saw a literal pig in the middle of the woods. If you haven't seen one in person, it's impossible to explain how surreal it is. He shuffled off, and I drove on. The state house itself is beautiful, and the museum inside was being renovated by a ranger who was repairing the windows upstairs. The view was great, facing the Indian River Lagoon and reflecting the sunlight from its white panels. I'll be honest and tell you that older buildings like this often make me feel uneasy. The idea of a whole house, very old and totally unoccupied, it sends shivers down my spine. But the Eldora State House, shockingly, did not incite such a feeling. It felt peaceful and welcoming, and I was glad to see it looking so beautiful in the Florida autumn heat. To finish my search along Canaveral Seashore, I drove as far as the road would take me. After a few minutes, I arrived at a sign unlike any I had ever seen. Warning, it read, you may encounter nude sunbathing within Boardwalk 5. I had been warned. A minute after that, in an almost comic fashion, there was a white line on the road running at a strange angle with a blue sign at its edge. Now entering NASA KSC property, it read. The severity of these two signs were hilariously juxtaposed, and I drove on. I won't be crude but I'm going to be completely honest. I saw about 20 naked old folks on the beach yesterday. The sign warned me, and those signs don't lie, but curiosity got the better of me, and indeed, loads of people sat in chairs in their natural splendor, savoring the Florida sun. I wasn't the only modest individual on the beach, but we clothed few were heavily outnumbered. I didn't bother anyone, and no one bothered me, and I was left with a startling realization. That is the most serene beach I have ever been on. My next ghost towns were in a line leading up to the employee entrance of the Kennedy Space Center. They were named Shiloh, Clifton, Allenhurst, and Wilson. They were along Kennedy Parkway, which ran past marshes in the middle of the refuge and were apparently highly populated areas some hundred or so years ago. Shiloh came first, and is possibly the oldest. 
It was a sugar plantation during British rule as far back as the 1760s. This plantation was known as the Elliott Plantation, and according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, several of the buildings, including slave villages, a sugar factory, a blacksmith shop, and more, are all, quote, unusually well-preserved, unquote. They are, however, inaccessible. Signs block the roads. Before Shiloh existed, however, it was populated by the Timaqua and Ayas tribes, who built burial mounds, some of which may date back to BCE. Again, however, blocked off by signs from the refuge and totally inaccessible. From where I drove, there is only one man-made structure visible in the area that a map indicates as Shiloh. A parking lot, perhaps. A slab of concrete overgrown by grass and almost invisible to those who are not looking. Whatever pain and suffering affected Shiloh in the past several centuries cannot be reached as a casual passerby. Down the road from Shiloh, apparently, Douglas Dummett, a prominent figure in the Indian River citrus fruit industry, planted some of his early groves, but that's a story for our next adventure. In 1872, the town of Clifton was born in the same area, though it was called Hallover at its inception. Butler Campbell, a former slave, came south to Florida and formed this homestead as an African-American community. They opened the Clifton Colored School in 1890, which lasted until 1910 before it became a home a decade and a half later. When NASA came in the 1960s, they bought the land of Clifton, this once historic town, and either moved or demolished the structures. All that remains is a cemetery, which I passed without prior knowledge, though I did stop to pay my respects. A group of three sat on the side of the road, fenced off, with a sign reading the names of the buried. Eliza Crook, Tom Crook, and Mary Watton. 200 or so feet away sat another fenced-in area with one single upright gravestone. The name on the sign said, Emma Watton, the same surname as the woman buried nearby. Attached to the fence of the lone gravestone were flowers and stuffed animals long decayed, indicating that perhaps the person buried here is a child. Eerie in description, but more melancholic in person. Why was she so far away from the others? I took comfort seeing fishermen nearby, and I like to imagine that the four buried dead of Clifton enjoyed the company. Allenhurst was next, though there was no indication. All there was in the area on the map marked for the city was a drawbridge and a manatee viewing stop. Naturally, I screeched to a stop. Indeed, I saw a group of slow-moving sea cows, their noses bursting through the surfaces and their big paddle tails pushing patterns as they drifted. Two sleek dolphins zoomed by and a nearby kid was peppering his mom with questions about aquatic mammals. The gathered company enjoyed the view, then all headed off at once. Whatever Allenhurst had to offer back in its heyday, there were no remnants today. Apparently, it used to be a fishing community situated on the same river that Clifton flourished on. Apparently, there is a NASA property in the area that houses a cemetery for the town as well. Allenhurst, though, was bought by NASA, and the residents were moved, and the remnants were destroyed. Some videos on YouTube show ruins out in the woods, but Allenhurst, to the common passerby, was gone. The replacement, I will say, was a warm spot, built for education and comfortably populated. This ghost town did not feel quite so ghostly as the past few had. The last stop was Wilson, and the sites informed me that this was where the employee entrance for KSC was. They were right. A four-way stop with a traffic light and real roads appeared from nowhere. Train tracks zoomed past remnants of the Wilson Lumber Company, which existed on this spot in the 1930s after many of the other cities in the area had fallen to ruin. The tracks were the footsteps this area left behind. In the distance, a shock to the system, I could see the large vehicle assembly building at Kennedy, the most iconic building on property. 
Just for the hell of it, I approached the guard gate. An armed guard stepped out and graciously waved me through after I pulled the lost tourist gimmick. A note for posterity, I was not lost. So I turned and headed west, driving quicker than I should have because something struck me. This is all very cool and interesting and spooky, but none of it had been what I came here for. I came here for overgrown suburban neighborhoods abandoned by astronaut families some decades ago. I had seen them just five and a half years ago. Where are they gone? So I drove. Up past Titusville, down through Cape Canaveral, right through Cocoa, and eventually into Cocoa Beach. I had driven every major road between the Kennedy Space Center and I-95, and no matter where I went, nothing. No overgrown suburbs, no abandoned neighborhoods, not even the biker bar I remember so clearly. So I pulled to the side of the road, and in a moment of pedagogic brilliance, I googled the sentence, Where did astronauts live, Florida? The first result was straight to the point, Cocoa Beach. Well, that's where I was. The Cocoa Beach website indicates that Cocoa Beach was so famously the location of astronaut homes that the popular show I Dream of Genie, which premiered in 1965, was set in Cocoa Beach because the main character, Major Tony Nelson, was an astronaut. Beyond that, despite excessive research, nothing in the internet points to the idea that there are abandoned neighborhoods outside of the Kennedy Space Center. Whatever I saw in 2013 as an eager 17-year-old with a burgeoning interest in Florida history had either been completely removed or possibly had never existed. Either way, I had no more time to search, as the time change was bringing the sun down earlier than usual, and I didn't want to be driving on country roads in the dark. So after a quick dinner on the beach, I departed. The memory I have, still, as I record this, is so clear. It had struck me with so much inspiration, and I was so eager this week to finally get to tell the story that had sparked my imagination almost six years ago. However, there's something to be said about the way things change in Florida. Obviously, there's the idea that this show's title, the premise that things change so quickly so it's best to not get attached. But that's not what I was thinking as the cape faded into the rearview mirror. Eldora, Shiloh, Clifton, Allenhurst, and Wilson once stood, populated, flourishing, growing. They were there. The Timaquan people lived in peace, building their mounds and fish camps before colonization came and took all that away. They were there. The towns of the East Coast diminished before NASA came and made their mark. They are there. And even though things change quickly, like the storm that came and went in the middle of my drive, or the huge crowd at the manatee viewing deck that suddenly all left at once, sometimes the changes take decades or centuries. But they don't fully change. It's all still there. The Timaquan's oyster mound stands tall. The Eldora State House radiates warp. The Wilson train tracks carry supplies to the Kennedy Space Center. Florida has been Florida for thousands of years, and it will be Florida for thousands more. There's no real room for nostalgia here. It really makes you pause and think. What kind of mark do you want to leave on the peninsula for excitable historians to discover decades from now as they strive to understand what makes this little state tick? What kind of mark? My final word on my adventure, I will offer two pieces of advice. Following the midterms, remember that everything changes. Maybe not quickly, maybe not the way you expect, but everything changes. My second piece of advice, if you're looking for the quietest beach in Florida, look no further than the nude beach at the Canaveral National Seashore. Bring a hat.
you like this episode, please share it with a friend. These stories are the most fun to make, and I hope you have fun listening. I think if there's ever an episode to share with a friend, the Black Bear episode, the Skunk Ape episode, and this episode are pretty good places to start. If you have any questions or would like to pitch a topic in the future, you can reach me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. Next week will be about Florida's dependent relationship on hunters and hunting seasons, which was a topic recommended to me a few weeks ago by my friend Annie. All the music in this episode is from Lobo Loco. All the sources used in the research can be found in the episode description below. Thank you for listening. If any of the recounts happening statewide change the election results, I'll be covering that story and how it happened at the beginning of next week. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and drink more water. Have a good weekend, guys.